Well, welcome back once again to Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Savalero. Don't forget the seventh annual EMS Trend Report. We'll provide expert analysis measuring the trends, shaping the future of our profession. We've talked about this in detail. And this year's survey seeks to explore issues directly tied to provider recruitment and retention, including physical and emotional safety factors and management support. Look for the link in this episode's show notes or visit ems1.com backslash 2022 dash trend dash survey backslash. And here is my friend, one that knows the value of the EMS trend report, the man we call Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson, what's going on, KG? Oh, man, just just the usual. Uh, um, if I'd had to take the EMS trend, support, uh, trend report this morning uh, instead of a couple of weeks ago, uh, <laughs> I would say bad things about the future of EMS and EMS management and dispatchers in particular. <laughs> did you get a late call? Did you? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. They caught me on a, they caught me on a bad day, uh, but yeah, got a late call, you know, and it's your typical late call. Oh, I hope I didn't bother y'all. I've had a problem that's been bothering me for months and it needs to go to the hospital right now. And why, why do you look so rumpled, dear? Well, I was asleep, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't wake you up. When do you get off work? About five minutes ago, ma'am. Would you like to get on the stretcher? <laughs> and, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, um, got chastised by my supervisor because I had a, <clears throat> a long 10-8 um, time. Took me, uh, took me a, uh, about three minutes to get in the ambulance uh, this morning at 6 a.m. So. so the 10-8 is response? is uh, Yeah, response time, yeah. long response time. What took you three minutes? Hey, man, man, what took you three a, minutes to a, get out the door? Uh, well, my old man bladder, for one. Um, I've, I've reached that age in EMS where when the phone rings, that triggers your bowel and your bladder response. Uh, you don't feel the need until, bang, the tones drop. Oh, yeah, and then and then everything kind of spasms. So, yeah, I had to go do that, or I'd be doing the potty dance throughout the entire transport. Hilarious, hilarious. So, <laughs> well, rather than talk about your bladder, let's talk about something that's more exciting. You know, so, Kelly, you and I are a fan of comedy, and we joke a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, what a lot of people don't know is when we're show prepping, we have a lot of uh, back and forth with uh, movie quotes. And a couple of weeks ago, it was... Uh, it was blazing saddles that we were going back and forth on, but we had a really, a a bad thing, you know, happen in the comedic world, Bob Saget, who was a a great comedian in his own right. I think an underrated comedian host of America's funniest home videos for the longest time was in movies. Of course, was in a TV show, full house unexpectedly passed away uh, while he was away from home and come to find out Kelly, that, he actually died from a head injury. And I think that there's some investigation that needs to go on uh, from that head injury. I think they're saying there was no foul play, but uh, you know, head injuries are something that are very, very serious and something that we may not pay attention to because the patient may be responding as uh, normal as they can be. And I'll tell a quick story, a quick antidote before we get into this topic there was a gentleman who was, uh, he was uh, probably a teenager, 19 or 20, wrecked his car and uh, actually, uh, you know, overturned it into a ditch and he's standing next to us. And I'm like, you know, let us take you to the hospital. You just don't know. He's like, no, I don't want to go. What's the date? Who's the president? Tell me where you are. Tell me what happened. And uh, 
you know, the car was damaged. Kelly, this was a pretty yeah. well, you know, car on its top. It was pretty damaged. And I asked them another time and I asked them two more times and I asked them three more times. And my partner said, you know, let's just get out of here. And uh, I said, let me ask him one more time. And I went up to him and said, do you want to go to the hospital? And his response to me was, what happened to my car? Uh, and he was one answer away, Kelly, from me leaving him on scene with an AMA because he was answering appropriately. When yeah. we think of head injuries, we may get complacent. And we uh, wanted to go ahead and uh, talk about head injuries. We wanted to talk about some of the challenges, but uh, give us your initial thoughts. Yeah. yeah. You know, I had a similar, I had a similar episode many, many years ago with a, a nursing home patient who fell at the nursing home and she was awake, alert and oriented and very upset that we were going to take her to the hospital anyway. And, uh, uh, we sweet talked her into it and, and ta-taught her and held her hand all the way to the hospital. And we, we brought her to the rural hospital like they, uh, like the facility requested. And I was up front schmoozing with the nurses, uh, and at the ER desk and we heard her start snoring. And my first reaction was, well, I guess she got over the mad and now she's back to sleep. No, it was, it was not sleep. Uh, her airway was compromised and she had a, she had a pretty significant bleed and, uh, learned my lesson on that. But yeah, the, the thing with Saget that, that is, is kind of uh, concerning is the extent of his skull fractures. This guy had multiple skull fractures, linear skull fractures, even down to the, he had orbital fractures as well that, that uh, are, are pretty extensive uh, for just falling in the shower and getting up and then going back to bed. Uh, that, that, that doesn't jibe. Uh, not to mention the fact that, that, uh, the, the, uh, investigators found no blood, hair, tissue, anything like that on the bathroom floor, uh, or anywhere on any flat surface where he could have hit, but be that as it may, and, and leaving all conspiracy theories out of it, yeah, uh, too late. Bob, Bob Saget is not the only, um, not the only celebrity to have died of a, a head injury in such a fashion. Some of them are pretty good teaching cases for, for the types of head injuries that we, we see. Natasha Richardson being one of them. Uh, Liam Neeson's uh, wife, uh, you know, she, she suffered a skiing accident in Vail and, and initially refused EMS care. Uh, and then started complaining of a severe headache a couple hours later and, and coded uh, and, and had, you know, that's a perfect example of a lucid interval and an epidural hematoma. So uh, the nice folks at EMS1 asked me to do a, a primary uh, primer and, and uh, pathology review for brain injuries. And, and that's what we're, we're doing. Yeah, okay. but one of the things that you bring up, Kelly, is that they didn't find anything in the bathroom that he could have fell and hit his head. But yeah. this could have been hours ago that he fell uh you know yeah. another story there was a call when i worked uh, at an ems system where there was a bar fight and the gentleman was hit in the back of the head with a full beer bottle and he was uh intoxicated of course this just changed the whole system dynamics of how we dealt with getting uh, amas for people who were drunk but the next morning he woke up in his bed and he was dead of course, he yeah. didn't wake up. Right. So when you talk <laughs> yeah. about that, they didn't find any hair, they didn't find any blood. That doesn't mean that that's where the fall happened. But let's get into specifics here. So we've got a very, very important topic and we've got a little mm -hmm. bit of time. There are two broad classifications of traumatic yeah. brain injury. Why don't you give us what they are? 
those those broad classifications of a brain injury are classified by whether they involve the brain parenchyma or not. Extra axial injuries are the classic uh, epidural, subdural, and and subarachnoid uh, hemorrhages. Those those are within the skull, within the cranial vault, but outside the brain tissue itself. Those are the typically uh, the ones that we see from falls and and blows to the head, uh, but and and are are fairly straightforward, even if if they can be deadly. Uh, the, the treatment involves uh, evacuating the hematoma and relieving the pressure. But what is more insidious and much more difficult to deal with are the intraaxial injuries, which are not specifically bleeding. It's, it's inflammation and, and, uh, uh, and tearing and stretching uh, of the neurons in, in those areas. And those intraaxial injuries, like, like a diffuse uh, axonal injury, uh, can, can have devastating consequences, uh, lifelong consequences, if not death. And they're very difficult to, to manage and treat. Uh, there's not much you can do for intraaxonal injuries. What happened to SAG if they didn't say uh, what type of brain injury he had, but uh, obviously with extensive skull fractures as he had, it, it probably had to have been pretty significant. Um, but you know, the, ep, uh, the epidural hematoma is the one that we're taught has that classic lucid interval. Um, because epidural hematomas are typically uh, arterial bleeds. Uh, about 70% of the time, it's the middle cerebral artery that does it. Uh, the the terion of your skull, right there where your sphenoid and your, your frontal and, and uh, temporal bones and parietal bones all come together, your, your skull is extremely thin right there, and the middle cerebral artery lies right underneath it. And you receive a blow right there. It can stretch and tear the temporal, uh, or excuse me, the uh, middle cerebral artery. And the initial blow knocks you unconscious and you wake up and you feel okay, fine. Maybe even like Natasha Richardson refused EMS care during that time. But as that bleed expands, remember it's an arterial bleed, so it expands pretty rapidly. And then it starts compressing brain tissue. You suffer those neurological symptoms and often will die epidural hematomas uh, present with that lucid interval, but not always. And uh, the, the treatment for that is, is managing the, the hemorrhage, evacuating the hematoma, perhaps, perhaps even a craniotomy uh, to allow uh, that expanding hematoma to, uh, to expand somewhere then into the brain tissue. Uh, but uh, epidural hematomas can be quite deadly, but no less deadly, I would say, than subdural hematomas. Chris. Yeah, I you mean, know, so I, I think that yeah. there's a lot to talk about presentation yeah. and treatment, but now that you bring up subdural hematomas, give us the, yeah. give us the, you know, the 50,000 foot view of subdurals and then let's yeah. get into a little bit of the uh, signs and symptoms and treatment and management. Yeah. How many times, Chris, have we taken someone to the hospital uh, and, and the, the staff wants to know, was there a loss of consciousness? Uh, and they, they'll do the CT scan and the CT scan comes back clear, but they'll always send the patient home with that head injury protocol. Family has to wake them up every couple of hours and, uh, and, and check on them during the night because subdural hematomas are, are insidious, slow venous bleeds. It's the, it's the bridging veins that, that stretch and get, get, uh, get torn. It typically happens a lot with, with people with atrophied brains, elderly patients, uh, um, 
chronic alcoholics whose, whose brains tend to shrink as well. And uh, those veins get stretched and you rattle the, rattle the pee around in the can a little bit and uh, they can tear loose. And how many times, Chris, have you seen the, you know, the, the patient that, that uh, when they, they did a CT scan, they found multiple old hematomas that were never reported and never sought medical attention for. Uh, I know I've seen those, you've seen those as well. Uh, so I kind of liken them to, to uh, GI bleeds, you know, that, that um, anyone would go seek medical attention if they throw up bright red blood. Uh, but if somebody throws up dark red coffee ground emesis just a little bit at a time, or they have tarry stools, diarrhea, um, even though it's a much slower bleed, it may go on for quite some time before they seek medical attention for it. And that's the insidious things about subdural hematomas is, is many of these patients don't seek medical care uh, because they don't feel bad enough uh, to, to go call an ambulance or go to the hospital. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's a perfect way to put that. One of the things that's really challenging is that you just don't know. I may feel okay yeah. today. And then after eight hours of sleep, I got a bigger problem than I knew what to do with. And, and how do you flip that coin? How do you say that I need to go ahead and get this looked at? I mean, as a paramedic, yeah. as an EMT, how do we gauge or how do we convince the person who may be alert and oriented times three times four, depending on what part of the mm -hmm. uh, United States you're in yeah. to say that you've got a problem. And for a couple hours of discomfort, let's go ahead and get you checked out because I feel normal right now, but five yeah. hours from now, I'm going to have a world of uh, challenges, a world of symptoms and a world, a of, world discomfort. of hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, the key to that is history, history, history. We can't see what's going on inside the skull, but we can listen to the history, uh, apply some critical thinking, uh, look at the patient's medication list and, and err on the side of caution. And, and that's a, uh, that's an issue I ran into two weeks ago, uh, an elderly patient who had fallen. He felt fine. He, he had absolutely no symptoms. He did not want to go to the hospital, uh, but he was an elderly patient that had fallen and hit in his head and was on Coumadin. And he said, I, I feel fine. I'm okay. And I said, sir, you're, you're, I'm not worried about the knot on the outside of your head. <laughs> I'm worried about what's in the inside your head. And the fact that you take, uh, you take a blood thinner uh, makes it problematic and makes you at much higher risk. And <clears throat> ultimately the, the, the call wasn't resolved to anyone's satisfaction, but I did get him to a hospital. The only hospital I could get him to go to was, was one that did not have in-house neurosurgery and neurology. It was a, it was a standalone ER. Um, but he said, I will not go to the hospital unless you take me to this one. So that was where we were. Uh, that was the deal I had to strike to, to get him to seek medical care at all. And they weren't happy that I brought him in, uh, but I, at least I did bring him in. And as it turns out, yeah, he had a subdural hematoma, had a, had a bleed going on and wound up having to get transferred to a, to a larger hospital. But that's the thing that I think so many people miss is the, is the history and the potential for, for that slow insidious bleed. And we all know that, uh, that elderly patients and patients on blood thinners need to be evaluated uh, but how, how many falls, Chris, do we pick up on, you know, multiple times a week, uh, dust them off, say, are you hurt? Do you want to go to the hospital? And they both all say no. And we sit them back down, sit them in their chair, put them back into bed and we go on about our business yeah. and they never seek medical attention. Right. 
and and that strikes me as you know that that's the that patient that when they finally do get a CT scan, uh, you, you find all these banana shaped bleeds uh, from old subdural hematomas that they never sought attention for. And and I think we sometimes miss uh, the potential for a, a, a brain bleed just because yeah. they didn't get hit on their head. You yeah. know, all it takes is a jarring force. And this is, this is where those intraaxial injuries come in, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the intraaxial injuries are, are pretty, you know, the, this is your, your typically your, your major head trauma where the patient is uh, with an intraaxonal injury or a diffuse uh, axonal injury. Um, it's within the brain tissue itself and, and you stretch and shear axons in the white matter. Right. And the, the CT scan does not show a great deal. Uh, it, uh, diffuse axonal injury is more or less diagnosed clinically uh, because the, the findings, uh, if, if any, are, are subtle on a CT scan. But if the patient has a, uh, the patient has a, a coma not explained by any significant uh, uh, radiologic pathology, uh, that lasts longer than six hours and they'll diagnose them with, with diffuse axonal injury. And a lot of these patients, even if they do recover from that coma after six hours uh, or, or, or much longer have memory or language skills, impairments and high order thinking or planning, you know, the, the way you feel every day. Uh, so, um, and, and, uh, and executive function dysfunction disorder where you would think, you know, to, to talk to the patient, uh, you may not sense that anything is wrong, uh, but in their day-to-day -day lives, they have severely impaired higher order thinking, cause and effect, planning, that sort of thing. Uh, the things that we do reflexively every day uh, to, in our daily lives, they, they can't do anymore because right. their brain cannot, cannot uh, sequence all the, the steps and thoughts and decisions needed to, to do that. Uh, it can be pretty rough. So one of the things that I think is important too, is, you know, we talked about, you know, bleeds and we talked about, uh, you know, what's happening inside, but brain herniation is really something yeah. that we have to pay attention to. And I think it's something that we, it, we don't really pay enough attention to because if there's a herniation, it's, it's not, it couldn't, it may not be happening at the time of treatment, but you may be called no. to this subsequently um, you know, because, you know, there's been a bleed going on as we talked mm -hmm. about, you know, when this happens, you know, we have some type of, of, uh, buildup of pressure that's pushing against something in the skull. And that could yeah. be Kelly, that could be the oculomotor nerve. That could be the brainstem, uh, that could cause nerve palsy. Um, that can cause, you know, compression of the posterior cerebral artery. I mean, so when we think about this, maybe give us some tips on what the presentation may be or how to examine a patient to see if there's hernia. I mean, we need to talk about intracranial pressure here yeah. because, uh, you know, and, and I got a follow-up question for you, but when we think about herniation, if we see this in the field, um, it's, it's a light sign and, and we should be able yeah, to see yeah. something that's going on with this patient symptom wise. Pretty, pretty, pretty significant late sign. And, and the thing that struck me in, in researching this, uh, uh, and, and filling gaps in my knowledge base was, was brain herniation is, is, uh, is uh, there are many more types of it than the, the type that I was taught in, in paramedic school. 
uh, that that different parts of the brain that herniate. I remember my my paramedic instructor said basically your brain swells and it's getting squeezed out of your foramen magnum down into your spinal canal like like Play-Doh from a Play-Doh fuzzy pumper. <laughs> and and okay, that was a that was a great analogy, and I still use it to this day. But um, your cerebellum and your brainstem don't need to get compressed down and, and pushed out the foramen magnum for you to herniate. Other parts of your brain can herniate, and they they present with some pretty um, some pretty classic uh, cardinal signs. So, what happens in brain herniation is is through inflammation and swelling, uh, part of the brain slips into a place anatomically where it should not be and place and, and induces compression on other parts of the brain. And you mentioned uh, the thing like compression of the oculomotor nerve. That's, that's one of the classic ones. Uh, they have a saying in neurology uh, or in neurosurgery that the eyes always point to the lesion. Um, so when they'll have things like, uh, you know, when a patient has a, a brain bleed or whatever, an extraocular motor or excuse me, uh, oculomotor nerves uh, become paralyzed or palsied. The the functional nerves will pull the eyes uh, in that direction, and and the eyes kind of point toward the lesion. And and that compression of the oculomotor nerve uh, that uh, will result in in uh, dilation of that uh, of that pupil on that side. Uh, but I was interested to to learn about the sunset sign where where you uh, the brain uh, or the, excuse me the eyes uh, show a downward deviation of gaze uh, that that results from central herniation and, and uh, downward displacement of the brainstem. But it's not just the the eyes. You look for other things, particularly the major central herniation and, and signs of ICP like Cushing's triad. Uh, I don't know who Dr. Cushing was, but man, he came up with a bunch of stuff. Didn't he have so many things named after him? But but Cushing's triad is that classic sign of of severely elevated ICP. Uh, you have altered respiratory patterns, you have bradycardia, and you typically have hypertension. And and what some people miss is al- almost always it's it's uh, systolic hypertension. The diastolic pressure doesn't rise a lot. And in fact, it's quite common for the pulse pressure to widen significantly in uh, in um, Cushing's triad. Right. But when you see those things, or you see clinical signs of increased ICP and, and impending herniation, like any type of posturing, right. uh, that sort of thing, then, then we have to intervene. Uh, there's not much we can do to intervene. And some of the interventions we used to take back in the day are more harmful than good. But we, we can at least try our best to restore uh, close to normal breathing physiology and, and right. prop their blood pressure up uh, and that sort of thing. Well, it's good that you brought up Cushing's triad because it's something that we need to be aware of, but go ahead and touch on the Monroe Kelly Grayson doctrine. Um, <laughs> actually, I threw that in there. It's the Monroe yeah. Kelly doctrine, because this is another thing that we need to be aware of, right? Because yeah. when we start to think about, you know, uh, this illustration of how we're going to manage cerebral perfusion, again, a late sign, um, yeah. we got to know what we're looking for. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Monroe Kelly doctrine is basically states that your intracranial vault is, has a fixed volume. It contains what it contains. It can, cannot contain any more than that. And, and the volume within your intracranial vault, I'll just throw out a number. We'll call it 750 milliliters. It's, it's probably a good deal more than that. But, but that volume consists of three fluid volumes, brain, 
blood and CSF. You know, the brain, like any other body tissue, considered a semi-liquid medium, uh, but brain, blood, and CSF. <clears throat> and collectively, they make up the, the total volume of the intracranial vault. And if one changes, the other two, by necessity, have to change. So if you have an expanding hematoma and you've got increased blood volume in the skull, it is going to decrease brain volume, compress it. It's going to push cerebrospinal fluid out of the, out of the cranial vault and into the, the spinal canal. Or if there's a, a laceration in the dura, uh, it's going to come leaking out your ears or nose. It's going to do something along those lines. And likewise, if you had a tumor uh, and, and brain tissue was, was pushing on, uh, on things, then it, it moves cerebrospinal fluid out and it impairs blood flow and, and vice versa. So, uh, and, and the hydrocephalic patient, another example of that, uh, you, can't, you have to drain that excess uh, cerebrospinal fluid through a shunt or it's going to put pressure on the brain tissue, the brain parenchyma itself, uh, and impair blood flow if it gets bad enough. So the thing that we, you know, back in the day, and Chris, you can remember these days when we used to routinely hyperventilate head injury patients. Um, you know, I wonder how many turnips we created back in the day doing that when, when we were told that, that okay, uh, um, they got a head injury, the brain is swelling right now, you got to get on it right away, let's tube them and let's hyperventilate them so we can decrease that cerebral blood flow uh, and, and reduce the, the uh, expansion of, of that bleed that's going, that we assume is going on in their head. And yeah. we were hot for that, right? Again, oh, that, yeah, we did that, that so goes much. back to your, you know, your 50% comment about medicine. You know, we know that 50% is, is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. I mean, that, we were hot right. on that for years that we had to hyperventilate head injuries. And then all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt, you know, like a Chevy Nova on a, on a wet road, <laughs> you know, heading towards a cliff. And I don't know if you like that analogy or not, but one it's, of the things uh, is I, I do, you're, you're showing, you have to explain to the kids what a Chevy Nova was. Though. Get out of here, man. Get <laughs> out of here. Look up a Chevy Nova if you don't know what it is, right? But when we think about it, I mean, we were, as you mentioned, we were probably doing more harm than good, Yeah. but we were just following what everybody, you know, was mm -hmm. telling us to do. And now, oh my gosh, it's taboo. You know, you just, you, yeah. you know, you can't do that. So Kelly, let's talk really quick as we're getting up there in time. And maybe this is the last question that I give you. I think mm -hmm. I, I've had the opportunity to see a, a, a first draft of your article, and I think it's going to be a, a great one. Um, but maybe just give the listeners just a little bit about management. So if they see something, if they think they're going to have to do something based on traumatic brain injury, uh, what kind of guidance do you give them to say, think about this, remember this, do this and, uh, yeah. you know, get them to the hospital as quickly as you can. Well, the, the first step in ma in management is recognition, always recognition. You can't fix what you can't find. Um, so be aware of, of the pathology of, of the most common types of brain injury, how they present, uh, how to recognize the subtle findings, like the, the fifth question uh, that you asked was answered inappropriately or, or the potential for a brain injury, even though it, it, is, not, uh, it is not apparent, um, and getting the patient to definitive care because we can't do uh, intracranial uh, bolts and we can't do craniotomies. And I, I used to carry mannitol in a, in a uh, service I once worked for, uh, but I haven't seen it in the field in years. Um, so much of the 
the treatment that we render for patients with brain injuries is supportive care. And the idea is, is, is keep what you got, restore a physiologic normal as much as you can. When we talked about head injuries, it, it is, we, we don't, or when we talked about um, uh, routine hyperventilation, obviously that's a no-no now. Uh, and, and we, we didn't appreciate the fact that of, of how um, sensitive uh, that injured brain tissue can be to changes in intravascular volume and, and oxidation is even more sensitive than the rest of the brain tissue, uh, and it needs its blood flow. Uh, but if you can do controlled ventilation, not hyperventilation, but controlled ventilation, and keep their, their entitled CO2 on the low end of physiologic normal, that's probably appropriate and not harmful for the patient. Uh, you, you may get a little bit of, if you suspect a bleed, you may get a little bit of, uh, of uh, cerebral vasoconstriction, but not to an excessive degree. Uh, so you keep the patient's CO2, titrate it to a CO2 of 35, which is the low end of normal, and, and keep it right there. And if you have to, to manage their perfusion, make sure that their mean arterial pressure is at least 65. So, uh, you know, if the patient doesn't have blood to push around, it's certainly not going to, to make it into the cranial vault, and especially when, uh, when there's uh, expanding brain tissue and, and expanding bleed in there, and it needs all the pressure it can to make it into the, the cranial vault. You know, the, uh, you, you need to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure, and the only way you can do that in most pre-hospital settings is, is um, indirectly. Uh, cerebral perfusion pressure is the, the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. Yeah. Um, and we can't affect that uh, other than to say that we, we, we try to stabilize as much as we can one end of the equation. Get, get their, their shock treated, maintain their, their mean arterial pressure at 65 right. or better. Do things like uh, keep the patient warm, all the stuff that we normally do. Keep the patient, if, if uh, transport position will allow it, put them sitting up uh, in a semi-fowler's position um, and, and that sort of thing. And above all, go to a place that can help the patient. Don't take them to Podunk General Hospital, nail salon, tire repair, and crawfish hut. Uh, if your patient is, is stable at the moment uh, and you can manage their airway, breathing, and circulation, it's probably better to pass the, bypass the community hospital and go to the trauma center. Is that a real well, hospital? Is that a real hospital? Podunk General Hospital. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a Podunk General Hospital nails line tire repair and crawfish shut. It's a um, <laughs> that's, awesome. that's my joke for some of the hospitals in my area. We we had hospitals that had attached nursing homes. Oh, interesting. The hospital and the nursing home was one thing. Kelly, uh, obviously, this is not to you don't want to you don't want to take your your severe trauma patient to a patient to a a place that has you know God's waiting room as an annex. Right. So, so I just, I want to touch on one, I want to touch on one point. I don't want to, I don't want okay. you to gloss over it because okay. even though, I mean, you mentioned it, but it's not something that we talk about enough. Okay. And it really has nothing to do. I mean, it has to do with what we're talking about, but it really is goes more, more towards airway management. And when we are getting, you know, a 12 to 20 ventilation rate based on, mm -hmm. you know, this person's, uh, you know, PO2 or whatever it is, yeah. you've got a great tool called capnography, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of ventilating somebody at 12 to 20 times per minute, ventilate them to 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Yeah. And we don't look at that enough. You may ventilate them six or seven times 
And as yeah. long as they're able to maintain, uh, you know, that millimeter of mercury in the capnography, yeah. that's normal. You know, so <laughs> I, again, I don't want to gloss over that fact. We have to be able to use the tools that we have to treat the patient. So I yeah. remember, you know, bagging somebody with a traumatic brain injury on the way to a, a hospital in a, in a transfer. Uh, and I was bagging them eight times a minute but I yeah. kept them right in the range of about 40 mm -hmm. millimeters of mercury on my capnography. I think we've got yeah. to be able to, again, not just follow protocol because it says to give them 12 to 20, but use the tools that we have to manage that patient and deliver treatment as best that they need. But I think that that was an important point that you said, and I just yeah. don't want to gloss over that because this fits in a lot of other carry uh, categories than just traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there's, there's there's precious little need to ventilate even as fast as 20 yet i see that sort of thing all the time you you, you pick up a patient at a hospital and they're on a event and and some doctors or respiratory therapists just have their go-to vent settings and they everybody gets that uh and then they ship them out and and you look at the paperwork and they're they're you know operating off uh from a, a blood gas drone an hour ago and here they are ventilating the patient at at 16 to 20 breaths a minute and their entitled CO2 is, is 20, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not physiologically appropriate, probably not good for the patient. And you were talking about, you know, ventilating your guy at, at eight to 10 breaths a minute and maintaining a normal, uh, a normal CO2. Uh, I remember in the days before capnography and before I even had a ventilator, I had to ventilate a head injury patient that had the parietal section of a skull just knocked out and hanging loose. And I knew I was getting tired bagging when I could see his brain start to bulge out of his skull. Uh, and then I, like, I handed over to my partner. Okay. You bag for a while. I got up. My hands are cramping up, but yes. Uh, you know, titrate your, your ventilation parameters to what's physiologically normal, not some set number uh, of, of respirations per minute because my normal respirations may not be yours. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. How difficult is it to you to detect and manage brain injuries? And you get any special mojo, we'd love to hear about it at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Y'all don't forget to rate us on iTunes, and we'll catch y'all with another episode next week. 